This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 8.15 and 10.30 a.m. for Holy Communion and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Please enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. That we also may be like all the nations. This unfortunate line in 1 Samuel chapter 8 has been humanity's excuse to reject Almighty God for ages. It was Israel's line in this particular chapter that we read this morning when Samuel, as their prophet and their judge, after several decades, was fading in old age. The people's call for a king, as we read today, was out of fear, was out of desperation. Yet in their fear, as in every age, including our own day, we go to the extreme of trusting in our own strength, our own capabilities of defense, whether on the individual level or the national level, over the sovereign care and protection of God. When we start looking around to see how everyone else is doing something, as Israel was doing here in this chapter, we slide quickly into idolatry and to self-trust over trust in God. In our day, and the same rang true for the Israelites in 1 Samuel 8, we have the tendency when things are going sideways to look to human-centered solutions over the simplicity that God calls us to of bearing our fears to Almighty God in prayer, in worship, This is where Israel found herself in this chapter. Instead of doing as she did decades earlier in the previous chapter that we read last week, calling Samuel to cry out to the Lord in repentance as a nation, Israel here looked elsewhere. This morning, as we continue our series this year in 1 Samuel, let us, on this first Sunday in Lent, focus on our need to stay grounded in Jesus Christ over the fears and threats caused by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The background to the people looking to the ways of the surrounding nations occurs in verses 1 through 3. In verse 1 we read, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. This followed the pattern of other judges in the previous time periods. Gideon had his sons. Eli had his sons. As we know from the early chapters of this book, the sons of Eli in Eli's old age were labeled as worthless fellows. And as we read, God judged the entire house of Eli for these transgressions. Samuel's sons here were described in the following words in verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Eli's sons, as we read earlier, committed immorality, blasphemy in their roles as priests. Samuel's sons, in their capacity as judges, acted with corruption. They made justice a joke in giving deference to those that paid. 
In such a corrupt system, it is no wonder the elders of Israel we will encounter in the next few verses requested what they requested. There is a cautionary tale for us here in trusting in birth for our offices as Israel often did in her history. For Eli and his sons, God for the, man, for the, for the Levites mandated such. But for some of the judges, for most of the judges for that matter, appointed for the midst of all of God's people, they were appointed by a divine special call. In this call, it was human nature to try to perpetuate the ministries God had given them to give their ministries to their sons. In this period, God appointed men and women as he saw fit. Samuel's sons proved that one cannot trust in one's birth. This would occur in the time of Jesus Christ as well as he collided with the Pharisees and the religious elite that trusted in their status as Hebrews born after Abraham over a trust and faith in God alone. Verses 4 through 9 give us the response of the elders. They gathered together at Samuel's hometown of Ramah and said the following in verse 4. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Notice that they preface this demand with the fact that Samuel's sons were wayward. They feared for their future. They feared that the same thing would occur as occurred with Eli's sons. Defeat in battle. Tens of thousands lost in battle. The ark lost to the Philistines due to a national sin, a sin that Eli's sons led them in. Samuel's sons were going down the same path. In this panic, if you think about it, they did not ask Samuel to pray unto God for a solution. They did not ask Samuel to confront his sons. They sought their own path, their own sinful solution to a future they feared. Notice as well that they did not ask Samuel to pray that God would appoint and raise up a new judge. They were in panic mode. When in times where we fear the future, the call is never to panic. It is never to seek our own human sin-centered solutions. The call is to cry out to the Lord in prayer and to wait upon him. They did not even ask Samuel, if you notice, to appoint them a king that God would call. They left it up to Samuel. Yes, Samuel was a godly prophet, a godly judge. Still, as he proved with his sons, he was no judge of character. Nor did he have the authority to make the pick on his own. Only God could do this for them. They failed to see this. Instead, they gave into their perceived fears for the future. Samuel then in verse 6 prayed to the Lord, and he is given this answer by God in verses 7 through 9. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This was the people wanting again to do what was right in their own eyes instead of keeping their eyes upon God to fulfill their needs. 
In such, they gazed upon the practices of the surrounding pagan nations. Instead of seeking God as their king, they sought their own. They sought to save themselves. Even in the midst of this infidelity, God, in his sovereign grace, instructed his prophet to issue a clear warning to his people about what a king would entail. Our next section of verses 10 through 18 contains these warnings. In our lives of faith and life in general, our propensity to sin, our nature of sin, makes it such that we really despise and hate warnings, or we ignore them. Think about it, when we drive the same route repeatedly every day to work or to school, we often know it so well that any warning signs on the side of the road are ignored as we know the trouble spots ahead by habit. Sometimes we don't even know those warning signs are there anymore. Yet when a new warning sign is erected on our route to caution us against something that is coming up that's new, we tend to ignore it or probably don't even see it. Yet say when we're traveling to a new place, say in the mountains, we tend to keep an eye out to caution us against things on the road we're not familiar with around the corner. It's in our nature, especially when we think we know what we are doing out of habit, to ignore, sometimes to even despise the warnings. For Israel, they were seeking what they thought was their own new path. Yet they were seeking the same old, same old, well-worn path of doing what was right in their own eyes. Yes, God in his grace gave them warnings. However, it was just as good for them as warning signs placed on our familiar routes with seldom chance we'll even see it before it's too late. The sixfold list of what the kings would do to them is a list really of the people asking to be enslaved. You want a king? Guess what? He will take your sons and make them serve in the army, fight in his wars. You want a king, guess what? He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers. You want a king, guess what? He will also take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards. You want a king, guess what? He'll also tax you a tenth over what you already give to the Lord as a tenth of your grain and your vineyards. You want a king, guess what? He will also take your male and female servants and the best even of your young men and donkeys and put them to work. You want a king? Guess what? He'll also take another 10% of your flocks this time. You want a king? Guess what? He'll make you his slaves in every corner of your lives. These were the warnings God told Samuel to issue to Israel. Samuel ends a section in verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verses 19 through 22 ends this chapter with Israel's answer. Even in light of these six dire warnings that were laid out before them clearly about what their kings would do to them. Verses 19 and 20 state, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations 
and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel made their fear-inspired desire to defend themselves by their own power, their God. They did so by a willingness to relinquish their freedom to become slaves of their king, of their nation. They demanded that God no longer defend them. They demanded to no longer serve God. They would rather serve a king as slaves. They wanted to be like all the other nations with flashy militaries ready and human eyes to fight at a moment's notice. They were willing to give up their own children, the best of their lands, their servants, part of their flocks and harvests to defend themselves for their security. Instead of reliance upon God that had defeated their enemies so many times in the past for centuries, always against impossible odds, they sought self-reliance. Samuel thus at the end of our chapter conveyed the answer to Almighty God. And verse 22 gives us the response of God. Obey their voice and make them a king. On this first Sunday in Lent it is important we heed these warnings from our past, from our forefathers in the faith, in our own lives. When we hit what we may think is a troubling time or think things look fearful for the future, what is our response? The answer that God gives us repeatedly in his word is to cry out to him in prayer, in repentance, and as we do right now, in his holy divine worship. The answer in the midst of prayer, repentance, and worship is patience, is to wait upon the Lord. As our psalm for this week states in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. And verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. And in verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Let us as Christians in this Lent remember anew the call to cling to Jesus Christ alone in everything. Let us turn our fears over to him in patient, waiting prayer. God provides always for us the path ahead, walking with us, leading us through every step, providing the warnings along the way. Let us heed these warnings, these warnings as we read earlier in the Ten Commandments, and live. Let us abide in him through all that we say, all that we do, committing every step, to be in his way, that our cry be to follow him, to trust in him alone, to trust in his timing alone, rejecting what all the other nations around us, what all the other peoples around us do. Let us close with these words from verse 2 of our recessional hymn this morning, hymn 100. Christian, dost thou feel them, how they work within, striving, tempting, luring, goading into sin. Christian, never tremble, never be downcast. Gird thee for the battle. Watch and pray and fast. Amen.